end of the New Testament, Hebrews, James, Peter, John. There's some numbers in there. Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First, uh, Second, Third John, Jude, Revelation. So it's towards the end. If you need the page numbers, you'll find it in your, in your outline. Um, I commend you, uh, I encourage you to um, read this, this uh, great book as, as we begin to study it together. Maybe this afternoon, uh, read through the whole book. It won't take you long. It is jammed packed. I think you'll find that you'll need to read it many times over, many times over as, uh, as we begin to look at it together to let it start sinking in. Uh, let me pray, though, and ask the Lord for His help as we come to His Word. Father, in these next few minutes, slow us down, we pray. Calm our hearts and focus our minds. Upon your word. Or that um, distractions of the day and concerns we may have, problems and trials. Lord, that you would focus us upon your word. That by your spirit, you would give us the anointing that we need to hear and to be changed. We pray this for both the, the hearer and the preacher alike. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning, but I want to read the first um, 12 verses to give us some context. Hear now the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven Things into which angels long to look. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Have you ever felt out of place? You know, feeling out of place is not a sin. When we're in different cultures and different situations in which we've never found ourselves before, it's natural to feel out of place. Indeed, as believers in Christ, We are out of place in this world. 
We are what Peter calls exiles. We might love our country and our hometowns, even Bruton, but make no mistake, our homes are in heaven and our flag is the banner of God's love. We are exiles and we are meant to feel out of place. About 30 years ago, Coca-Cola did a terrible thing. I'm not talking about new Coke versus classic Coke. I'm talking about when they changed from sugar cane, sugar, to high fructose corn syrup. And we all know there's a difference. If you have tasted a real Coke and then had what they sell in the stores these days, you'll know that there's a difference. Chrissy and I longed for a real sugar Coke about three, four weeks ago. And so we went to the Hispanic grocery store here on Douglas. If you've never been before, you ought to. It's a great little store. They have a lot of really fun things. So we went in and we got our Mexican Coke, which is still made with sugar, made from sugar cane. And we were greeted very warmly. Several folks let us go ahead of them in line and we had a lot of fun there. But, but you know, we felt out of place. We felt out of place because a different language was spoken there. All the signs and all the labels were in a different language. We were in a different culture. We felt out of place. We felt like foreigners right here in Bruton, Alabama. There's an element of that that is supposed to define the Christian life. That just as I felt out of place at the Hispanic grocery store, so too we are supposed to feel a tension in an out of placeness living in this world. I don't, I don't belong to the products and the culture of the Hispanic grocery store, as great as it is. But neither do we belong to the culture and language and atmosphere of this world. We belong to one of another. See, we are called to live as exiles by God's grace until we go home. First Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, and I would encourage you again, if I can plug Wednesday night again, we're looking at Peter Wednesday night. And I would encourage you to come and to join us as we look at this, uh, this fantastic individual. He would have written this book between 62 and 63 AD, and he was writing during the, the reign of Nero. Perhaps you recognize that name. He, he is the emperor who would eventually martyr both Peter and Paul in Rome. But at this point, Peter's not in prison. He's not in jail, we think. He's living in Rome, which he calls Babylon later in the, in, the, um, in the book. And he's writing to a group of believers living in an area that is 300,000 square miles. This is a big area. It's modern-day Turkey, Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and uh, Galatia. And he's writing to these believers. They're Gentiles. They are Christians who have converted out of pagan religions. They're not Jews. And he's writing to them in the midst of persecution and suffering. There, there's a, a great theme that runs through this, this book of, of being faithful to the Lord in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, and how we're supposed to live. And he's going to use this theme of, of being exiles by God's grace throughout the text to help us to know how to live. What is an, what is an exile anyway? In exile, if the, the readers would have immediately thought of God's people in the Old Testament. You'll remember your Old Testament history when uh, God sent His people 
Uh, first, he sent the Assyrians and he sent the Babylonians to send his people into exile, to carry them away from their homeland to live in a foreign land because they had disobeyed the Lord. They were living in the promised land, what we now call Israel. They were living there. It was God's special land, yet they were not following the God of the special land. They were not following God himself. They had gone out after other gods and were living in, in unhelpful and sinful ways. So God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to tell them, look, you've got to get it together. Repent and turn again to me, or I'm going to send the Assyrians. I'm going to send the Babylonians. They're going to come. They're going to destroy the temple, and then they're going to take you into exile. In fact, he said this to Moses back in Deuteronomy, long before God's people ever entered into the promised land. Well, they didn't repent, and so they were taken off. Most notably, Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, they were taken off to Babylon. They lived in exile. Now, an exile is different from um, an immigrant. An immigrant comes to a country to become part of the country. An exile goes unwillingly and sees it as a temporary thing. An immigrant may try to become part of a culture. An exile is one who maintains his culture, who maintains his lifestyle as best he can in the midst of living in a foreign land. An immigrant comes with the desire, most of the time, for it to be a permanent thing, whereas an exile goes, by very definition, hoping it will be a temporary thing. During the Second World War, there were many what were called governments in exile, particularly the the governments of Poland and France. They were driven out as the Nazis took over their land, and so members of their government fled to England, and there they set up Their government, as if their capital was still in their land, yet it was in a foreign country. They spoke their own language. They sought to preserve their own culture. And they sought one day to return. We too are exiles living in this land. And we are called to live in exile in this this land in a temporary assignment. The Poles and the French, they long to one day go back to their homeland of Poland and France. And we too, as exiles, we do not belong to this land. We yearn for and look forward to the inevitable, the sure thing, the sure hope that we have when Christ comes again, we will return with Him, or we'll go, rather, with Him to the new heavens and the new earth. Or if we die before He comes again, then we will be united with our Savior in our homeland of heaven. We're told this rather explicitly in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that you're one of the recipients of Peter's letter. Here are believers living in a Roman culture, a culture in which uh, culture and religion are, are intertwined and often inseparable. In order to trade, in order to be able to engage in commerce, you often had to say that Caesar is Lord or to sacrifice to idols of a certain trade guild. Two things that believers could not do. They were surrounded by an exceedingly ungodly environment and world and worldview. So for them, they, they understood very quickly when Peter called them exiles. They knew that they didn't belong. You know, if our homeland is in heaven, our, our citizenship in this world is one that we ought to hang on to lightly, for we really don't belong here. We're just stopping over. There's going to be tension. 
between what the Lord says, how we ought to live, and what the world says. Children, when your friends tell you that it's okay to do something, but you know in your heart that it's wrong, this is because you don't belong here. You don't belong in this world. Youth, when you are hard-pressed by your friends to do something you know doesn't honor the Lord, recognize that tension is a good thing because their citizenship may be here, but your citizenship is in heaven. In your heart, you know that you ought to do otherwise. Adults, we ought to recognize there's going to be tension between what we know the Lord calls us to do with our time, our talents, and our treasures, and what the world and all the advertisements tell us we ought to do with those things. How often do we know we need something when we finally see it on television? (laughs) Have you ever been to Dirt Cheap? You don't know what you need until you go there. It's very helpful. They have everything you need. We are called to have a different outlook. As exiles, we are called to have a different outlook. And when we expect out of this world what only our true homeland can give us, there are going to be problems. There are going to be disappointments. There's going to be dysfunction in our lives, in our relationships. But as we think about how are we to interact with this world, those folks who don't belong here, who belong in heaven, and from heaven we await our Savior, we wait for that day of our return to the Lord or His return to the earth. How are we supposed to live? Well, there are two extremes to avoid. I can't remember, sometime when I was a kid, we went to some museum that had this huge clock, and it was powered by this gargantuan pendulum. It was the size of a room. Do you know what a pendulum is? It's like a, a ball on the end of, a, of a, a string or a cable, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And, and generally how we react to things and situations is we go to one extreme or the other, two sides of the pendulum, rather than a middle ground where we ought to be. There are two pendulum swings, there are two extremes. And the first is that we run from the tension, that we don't engage with this world. We feel the tension with this world, and so some believers, uh, the Amish, the Holiness, the Primitive Baptists, these folks, and many like them, they'll have this mentality of we should run from the world and not engage it at all. Okay? That's oversimplistic. And so the result is that there's no engagement with the world around us. But as we look at um, God's commands to the exiles, Living in Babylon in the 6th century B.C., he said, you ought not to run. You ought not to run from the world. Now, he's not meaning sin. We ought to run from sin. We read this in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon... Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on His behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. They had been sent into exile for only about 70 years. And did God say, hunker down, don't have anything to do with anybody? He said, no, seek the welfare of the city of Babylon. Engage in it, for you are salt and you are light. We too have been called as exiles to live in this world as those who bring the light of salvation to the world. 
But the other, other, other extreme is just as unhelpful. And that's when we don't experience any tension at all. We studied a couple of these churches uh, in our Wednesday night series on the seven churches of Revelation, especially this last one, Laodicea, that we finished with. There was no tension between them and the world, and, and therefore they were, no, they were not persecuted. It's easy to become, it's far too easy to become like the culture. And so at the end of the day, no one can tell, maybe even we ourselves can't tell, if there's any difference between us and the world. I have a silly question. If you had a hundred candles and only one of them is lit, how do you know which one is lit? That's a silly question, right? It's the one with the flame coming out the top. Um, you know, we are the light of the world, Christ tells us. that he, Christ ultimately is the light of the world. He says that himself. I am the light of the world. We're told in Matthew 5, 14 through 16 that we are image bearers of Christ and that we are lights as well. You are light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they too may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's okay when there's tension between what we know is right and what the world says. And we're to to enter into that tension. Remaining holy saying no to sin, and yet bearing the light of Christ to the world. It's interesting because just before that passage, Matthew 5, Jesus says this, but but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It can't. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Are we living well as exiles do we remember that our home is not here? I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. And you know you're not from Bruton until like the fifth or sixth generation. And so I'm, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of the fact that I'm not from here. We love Bruton. But I'm not from here. I have to learn new streets. I have to remember connections and who's related to whom. And I sometimes feel that tension. Do we feel that tension when our homeland is in heaven and not here? And are we um, intentional about how we engage in this world until the Lord calls us home? Well, we are here because we are here by God's grace. See, there's a word that I left out of exile there, and it's, um, and it's that we are elect exiles. That we are exiles because of God's grace. See, we don't belong in heaven naturally, do we? We belong, our citizenship naturally belongs here. Our citizen ultimately naturally belongs in hell, for that's what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath and displeasure both in this life and in the next. And it is only by God's grace that we can call heaven our homeland. A salvation that we cannot buy. A forgiveness that we cannot earn. A redemption that we cannot pay for. We are here because of His grace. 
that we are, as Peter puts it, and as Peter writes to the people there in um, what is modern-day Turkey, they are the elect exiles. Before God created the world, before any of these provinces had been created, before any of these people had been born, before the Lord had come out of His sheer good pleasure, love, mercy, and grace to die for us, He had marked them and us as recipients of His salvation. He had written their names in the book of life in indelible ink with a sharpie of sharpies, never to be erased. Even before they had heard of him, he had set his mark upon them that one day when when salvation came to them, when they heard of the gospel, they would respond in faith. They were exiles by God's grace. But he had not only set them aside for salvation, he had set them aside to live where they were in places like Bithynia and Pontus, places that don't just roll off our tongues anymore, provinces that no longer exist. God had set them there on purpose, just like He has set us here on purpose as exiles living in places like Bruton and East Bruton, Riverton and Castleberry, Range and um, all the other areas around here. These places are not surprises to God. God has put you as an exile belonging to heaven in this place for a time that He might use you for His glory to bring other people to a saving knowledge of His Son. This word elect is modified in verse 2 by three different phrases. It looks like four in the English, but it's three in the Greek. According to the knowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, and for sprinkling of Christ's blood and obedience to Jesus Christ. That's actually three things in the Hebrew, or excuse me, the Greek. It's Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That our salvation is a Trinitarian activity that the Father sends and chooses, the Son saves, and the Spirit sanctifies. It is according to the the foreknowledge of God the Father. Um, The word foreknowledge does not just mean to know what's going to happen. It means to ordain. It means to arrange. Indeed, it doesn't mean to know facts or figures or events. The word to know refers to people. Just like Adam and Eve... Adam knew his wife, and nine months later they had a baby. This is an intimate word. And God knows His people before they ever take a breath. Praise the Lord. In fact, we read in in Ephesians chapter 1, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The Father, according to His election, to His foreknowledge, did not just send us as exiles here in Bruton, but He also sent His Spirit to make us holy. There are a couple of different ways we can use the word sanctification. We often use it in the sense that it is the process by which we come more and more like Jesus. But there's also a way that we can use the word sanctification to refer to what happens to us when we are saved. For we are taken from, not, from being not holy and made holy. Being declared holy before the Lord. This is important because while anyone can live in this world, in the land of our exile, it is only those who have been sanctified by the Spirit, rendered holy, that can step foot in God's country of the new heavens and the new earth. No trespassers will be able to slip by the gates of the new Jerusalem. No ladders will be able to carry folks over the walls. And wolves in sheep clothing will finally and fully be exposed for who they are. 
But all that is for these last two things. Obedience to Christ and sprinkling with His blood. You know, apart from this cleansing flood of Jesus' blood, there is nothing that is special about you and me, for we deserve hell. But God has from all eternity chosen His folks and sent His Son Jesus to die for us. We don't deserve it. It doesn't refer to the actual droplets of the blood. There's not enough to go around, right? It refers to all that Christ achieved by His his sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And here is the good news. That the Lamb of God, the God-man Himself, has shed His blood that we might be saved. What about you? Are you in exile? Or do you belong to this world? Have you been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus? Let me put it very clearly. We are sinners in this world. We are born sinners in this world. And because of our sin, what we say, what we think, what we do, we deserve eternal damnation. This is the common lot of man. Those three blessed letters. But. But. Christ came and He died so that sinners like you and me, that we might have our sins forgiven be declared to have never sinned, be declared righteous, be born again, that we might live with Him forever. We can't earn this. We can't pay for it. We can't pay it back. It's not rent to own. It's not a layaway system. It's a free gift, freely offered to all those who would receive it. Have you received the gift of salvation? Have you been sprinkled by Christ's blood? There's no other way to have our citizenship changed, to have our citizen changed to heaven than to be sprinkled by His blood, to repent of our sins and put our faith in Him and to ask Him for forgiveness and submit to Him as Lord. For He calls us to obedience. Certainly obedience to live in a a helpful way before Him. But but here, this obedience talks about obeying Him in the sense of, of bowing the knee to Him as Lord and accepting salvation. We are called to live as exiles by God's grace until we go home. One day our pilgrim days will be over. We'll be ushered home and it'll be a great home going on it. When all the sickness, sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When we walk the streets of gold and we get to see our Savior with our own eyes. And we rejoice as we are as parting friendships, as friendships that we have parted with in the past are knit up and we see Him again and we rejoice. And the aches and pains are gone. The sin is to be done with. And death has been vanquished. Are you going home? If Christ came today, would He take you home with Him? If not, may today be the day of your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have called us to live as exiles. Help us to live as exiles in a helpful way, pointing others to the true homeland that is free to all who would call upon Your name. Or change our hearts and help us, Lord, to be light and salt in this world. Not to run, but to run into this world by your grace. Remaining holy and telling others about your great love. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
All this is possible because of the deep, deep love of Jesus. Let's stand and conclude our service with 2.11 as we sing the first and third verses of Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. First and third. <laughs>